Today's episode is sponsored by Hello Atelier, the podcast that takes you inside artist studios. Join host Betsy Blodgett as she sits down with quilters, textile artists, ceramicists, painters, and more, many in their very own studios. Further immerse yourself in creative worlds by visiting helloatelier.org to see photos from their studio visits and links to each artist's work. Sign up for the Hello Atelier newsletter for bonus interviews with makers and entrepreneurs, including myself. Hello Atelier is available on all your favorite podcast apps. Tune in to their latest episode with quilter Luke Haynes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe and give them a rating. Thank you, Hello Atelier. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 127 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about creating a quilt show with my guest, Matt Reese. Matt is the owner of Road to California, the premier consumer quilt show west of the Rocky Mountains. Road to California features over a thousand antique, traditional art and modern quilts and awards over $92,000 in prizes to artists from all over the world. 190 vendors come to the four-day event at the Ontario Convention Center in Ontario, California, where 39,000 people gather to come and see the show, shop, and take 225 classes. Matt recently bought the show from his grandmother, Carolyn Reese, who owned it and ran it since 1990. Matt Reese, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the next generation of Road to California and the show's history and its future. So I'm excited to learn more about it. I've heard about Road to California for years. I've never been. So um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to hear about, um, about the show, a little bit more about it. So First, I think the most obvious question perhaps in people's mind, which is how did Road to California get its name? You know, that's a great question. And I wish I had a better answer than the one I'm going to give you. Um, Road to, my grandmother, Carolyn, bought Road to California from a lady named Brenda Werbelow. And Brenda's the one that came up with the name. And that's all you know. That is all I know. I know a lot about the history of the show, but that is the one part I have not been able to figure out what's the history behind it. Gosh, I wonder. I mean, is it it sounds almost like it came from a song. It does, doesn't it? And there's also the the Road to California quilt block that might have had some influence in the name. Okay. But but you really don't know what Brenda's sort of thinking was when she named it. And is she still alive? I believe she is. Hmm. She she'd come to the show. I haven't seen her there the last two or three years, but every time before that I had seen her there walking through the show. Okay. It, and and truly it's a it has morphed into something completely different than what she started back in the late eighties. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that and and how it's completely transformed, which is fascinating. And so all right, well we'll have to get down to the bottom of of what this name is, because it is a really unusual name. I know when I first heard it, you know, when I kind of first was introduced to quilting and 
heard about this, I was like, road? What is this? Because, <laughs> you know, people often refer to it as just road. Um, and you're like, what are what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so it is an unusual name. And uh, and we need to we need to get to the bottom of, of why it's called that. So um, maybe we can ask her if she's um, if she's still around and able to talk to us about it. But okay, so so yes, your grandmother, Carolyn, um, bought the show. And And at that time, it was like a little quilt conference in Anaheim, California. Like that's all it was. It was, it was pretty small and humble. Is that right? Yes. And it was never, it was never dreamed at that point in time to get to the way it is today. It was always a, um, she'd fly in maybe half a dozen teachers. And they would, she'd provide all the meals. She would arrange the hotel reservations, um, you know, kind of a full service operations for the ladies that would come to the show. And it was a, they would do block samplers. Um, they do block challenges from year to year. So we actually have here in the office um, all the quilts. There's one missing that we don't know where it is. I think my grandmother still has it. Um, but we have all the others from when they would do block challenges. And they're all signed. So it's quite a piece of history of Southern California quilting as to who's actually signed these blocks. Wow. Okay, so this was when your grandmother already owned it, but in the early days? Correct. Before it turned into this big show with vendors. and. Okay, so this was like in 91, 92, 93, sort of those early years after she bought it. So when your mother, when your grandmother, Carolyn Reese, bought the show, how what was she doing at that time? I mean, she must have been already a quilter. Why would she have bought this sort of quilting um, conference or quilting gathering from Brenda? Like, what was she, how did she stumble upon it? Well, her and my great-grandmother owned the Fabric Patch in Montclair, California. And she started, I believe, in 1986 in the Fabric Patch. And they started as a garment store to go buy your fabrics to sew your garments. Well, Nobody was doing that anymore. So they were on the verge of bankruptcy when she learned about quilting. So she started stocking quilting fabrics and grew the store into one of the premier Southern California quilt shops of its time. And she had heard this was for sale. So she asked her her sons about it. And my dad is, is kind of the accountant individual and told her, don't do it. <laughs> I love it. So, and she, she bought it. And the first thing she did was move it home, get it out of Anaheim and move it up to her home here in Ontario. Okay. I see. So she first pivoted the store and then bought this as like an events, um, sort of like expanding out into events. Correct. Okay. All right. Okay. I got it. That makes total sense. Um, Because she had grown the store and seen like a market for it and said this would be a cool way to sort of expand out. Um, So it was, so she was bringing in teachers and then bringing in people to, to teach, you know, to learn from these teachers. Um, And then she really obviously transformed it because, you know, going from maybe a, uh, you know, a couple hundred people coming, a thousand people coming to what it is today. So do you want to sort of trace a little bit about like the growth of Road to California, some of what you know about sort of the big changes over time? 
Yeah. So when she bought it, the first thing she did was move it to Ontario and it went to what was then the Marriott, which has changed its name probably a half a dozen times. We actually still hold classes in that hotel. Um, so she started as the conference and then she, as a vendor would travel around to Paducah and some of the other, you know, quilt shows that were around back at that time. And she was in Paducah one year selling uh, merchandise for the fabric patch and saw a bunch of her customers from California buying her products in Paducah. And she thought, well, why are all these people in Paducah buying the stuff that they can buy at home? And she thought, well, let's, let's add some vendors. So in 1996, she added vendors to the show and they were at the Hilton hotel. They had moved because they'd outgrown the Marriott. So they moved back to the Hilton and the Hilton has a wing that shoots off on the ground floor of about maybe 15 guest rooms. It's kind of an odd shaped hotel. And so she rented out seven guest rooms. They tilted the beds on end and they put the vendors in those seven rooms. Hmm. And we still have a couple of those vendors that have been with us since the very beginning of the show today. So from there, she outgrew that. She put it back at that Marriott that it had started at back when she moved it and had probably 15 or 20 vendors. And at the time, the city of Ontario was building a conference center for for business to business events. And she went over across the street because it's right across the street from the Marriott and was standing in there on the dirt floor before they even had the slab port and said, we should run a quilt show here. So she went to the general manager that was opening the building and he threw an absolute fit because she wanted to put a consumer show in the building that had the intention of being only for business events. But Ontario is or was a fairly small market for events back then, and they can't turn down business. So he said, okay, she signed the contract, and we used the first little half of the exhibit hall that first year. So we have been the longest client that that convention center has had. We were there from day one, and we've been there ever since. Wow. And are you now one of their largest clients? We are their largest clients. Ah, that's amazing. Okay. Wow. So, so I mean, the history can go on forever and no, ever. I mean, you some can keep the, going. Tell us some of the bigger, yeah, some of the bigger pivots, some of the bigger changes. So in 2008, the show had grown to the point where we were using one segment of the ballroom and all the exhibit hall somewhere around 80,000 square feet of space. And the convention center sold her on putting vendors in a tent outside. So she took and she put about 20 vendors in a tent outside and the convention center was not all that prepared for what a tent might be like outside and the wind blew and the lights broke and it was chaos, absolute chaos. But it goes to what happened is all those vendors in that tent picked up their merchandise and moved into one of the ballrooms that was not being used that day. It was the last day, thankfully. And they sold their products on the floor and the ladies still bought their products. 
So that was our first foray into tents. We decided that tents were a bad idea, and we moved back into having vendors in all three of the ballrooms in the exhibit hall. The next big thing we did in 2010 was we solicited to have hands-on long-arm classes. We had noticed that other than the micro, kind of the microclimate going on of the uh, sold machine quilting shows, that no national show had really embraced long-arm quilting yet. They had done lecture demos, but really, you know, the education's in the hands-on aspect. So we added hands-on classes, and we were only doing them on Monday and Tuesday before the show opened. And that turned out to be chaos with the machine companies having to tear everything down. So we now have – we are the largest machine quilting education show in the country. We have um, a Bernina Q20 room. We have – three different long arm brands. We have a sweet 16 room. Um, and we hold those classes from Monday to Saturday now. And they're one of our best filling classes. And you need a ton of space to do that. Am I right? We do. And that's, that's the biggest challenge with them because they'll take up two rooms where I could sell domestic machines in each room. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that explains why they cost more is because there is a definite issue with the space they require. Um, and there's, it's different. Um, Stevie Graves is my faculty consultant, my, my all around go-to, um, person answers all my questions if I have any. And the two of us have kind of navigated our way through the long arm quilting world, trying to understand how the classes are operate because long arm quilter teachers expect to be paid differently. They, they have all different expectations from what your normal domestic teacher has, you know, expects. Interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of those differences? Like, do they expect to be paid more or just, just a different um, like ratio or by, you know, in what, in what ways is it different? So we pay our teachers a flat fee plus their expenses. The long arm quilting world um, pays a percentage of the class seats sold. Um, so that was a little difficult to migrate their expectations into our model. So for the first couple of years, it was difficult for us to get teachers because we were sticking to our model. Um, because the way you know to, to maintain your your employee expenses low, if you're running two different models at the same time, it, it's grossly inefficient. So we we were trying to push them towards flat fees and expenses. And through, I would say, by about 2013, 2014, um, we had gotten some real big names signed on to, to you know, how we handle teachers. Um, and that helped. And, and to touch on that just for, for a quick second, um, teachers are paid very inconsistently across the industry. Uh, most people probably wouldn't know this. Houston um, Quilt Sync pays a per student charge. Um, AQS pays a kind of a flat rate with expenses depending on the classes that they offer. Um, we have kind of the same model, but they're all grossly different in what, what they do. There's there's no uniformity in what a teacher can expect to be paid from even going to a guild. Guilds pay differently than shows do. So it's something that we have taken a step back and decided that we want our teachers to feel like they're actually on vacation when they come to the show. So we cover their meals, we cover their hotel, we cover their travel expenses. So when they show up, all they have to do is worry about teaching. They don't have to worry about getting enough students in their class to meet expenses because we've already worried about that and made sure all that works for them. Mm-hmm. I see. Right. And so you've just tried to be thoughtful about 
them and their experience and you want them. So, so like what, why have you done that? You, because you want to be able to attract the best faculty or is it, I mean, what was the reasoning behind that for you? It's really, I, I, I side on to the belief that you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And sometimes when you are so business oriented that you're going to bash somebody over the head with the business lingo. And a lot of the quilt teachers, they're not necessarily business people. They're, they're hobbyists, they're enthusiasts. They love what they're doing and the money's kind of an afterthought. So we try and we try and respect that and encourage that. But it also, at the same time, we don't want to take advantage of that. So we try and ensure that the teachers are paid fairly, that they're treated fairly, that they get that they get a great experience at Road. Um, some of the things that we we are lucky about is it's very easy to pull some teachers out of retirement if they live in the Midwest, upper Midwest, kind of New England area, because nobody wants to really be there in January. And Southern California in January is beautiful. So it's really we have the dates and timing on our side. But at the same time, we have such a reputation for taking care of these people. And it's just, it's a hospitality thing. You know, these are our guests coming to our home. Let's make sure they feel welcome. Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. Okay. And so you ended up, um, so did you end up having to shift your model for the long arm teachers in order to meet them where they were as far as what their expectation was for pay? Or did they end up flexing to accommodate your model? At first, they did not flex, so we we accommodated them. But as the show grew in prestige and name experience and became the place to launch a long-arm career teaching, we we have pushed them back into our model. I see. So okay. we, we ran dual models while we had to, and now we – now we're still able to run the dual models if somebody insists on it, um, but it makes more sense if they sit down, and they do the math to do to fall in line with everyone else. I see. Okay, because now you've you've really become kind of the premier place to launch uh, launch, as you said, a long arm quilting career as a teacher. Um, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Neat. So, um, so that, that's really cool. So, and you said you had somebody who is almost like a teacher consultant or go-to person that you're working with um, as the show owner to help you navigate some of this? Yes. So that's Stevie Graves. Um, She started in quilting. She was the president of Visions back. I'm not sure when she did that. Um, And she actually handles our judging floor. So Stevie was brought on, I would say, in the early 2000s as somebody to handle the judging floor. And then my grandmother saw that she she's a great networker. She knows everybody. So if you're at Quilt Market, everybody knows Stevie. Um, and so my grandmother kind of leaned on her to help her with the teachers. And then when I was hired in 2008, she kind of took me under her wing and was, was a mentor figure, um, introducing me to people in the industry, um, kind of teaching me the ropes, showing me, you know, what's going on, keeping me out of trouble. Um, you know, the, the, the normal things a good mentor would, would do for somebody. Um, so you could see, if you see me at quilt market, Stevie's not far behind or in front of me where we generally run as a pair, run through the, run through the shows together. I see. Okay. And what do you, do you, do you guys have a booth at quilt market? What do you do at quilt market? <laughs> 
I specifically go to quilt market to look for new teachers. Okay. So we go to schoolhouse because we figure if somebody can give a good schoolhouse presentation of between 15 and 45 minutes on anything, then they can handle a classroom of 26 people trying to pull their attention in 26 different directions. Wow. So that's good to know because a lot of people who listen to this podcast would really like to get into teaching on the national circuit um, and would love to be able to teach at road, you know, a show like Road to California. So um, so it's good for them to hear that, you know, if they have the opportunity to do a schoolhouse for a fabric company, um, for example, and do a good job that you might be there in the audience and, you know, you might be somebody that they could connect with and that could lead to this opportunity. Right. So that and the, the publishers, they, they've backed down lately on how many schoolhouses they do, we noticed, um, in Portland. But that, that's a wealth of information for us to go to a publisher's schoolhouse room and almost sit there for all their presentations to kind of hear who's up and coming, who's new, who's writing books. Um, and the other big function that Stevie does that, that I'll give a plug for is she does the she was president of the International Quilts Association, and then she does all their book reviews. So if you get the IQA journal and read the book reviews, that's actually Stevie doing the book reviews. So it gives us another another insight into what's going on in the quilting world. I see. So she's like a really well-connected person who can mentor you and help you. And um, that's a great person to have by your side, especially through this transition as you took over. Um, She just sounds like a super valuable um, partner for you. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, the Hello Atelier podcast and the host of that podcast, Betsy Blodgett. My name is Betsy Blodgett, and I'm the host of Hello Atelier. And what is Hello Atelier all about? So Hello Atelier is kind of my excuse to get to go into the studios of artists and makers that I really admire, um, and not only get to sit down and talk to them about their process and their inspiration, but also actually get to see and kind of experience where they work. The audio portion, obviously, of the podcast is the interview um, where we talk to them about everything they're doing and how they got there and what they want to do in the future. And then we also have a visual portion of the podcast where if you go on our website, we've taken um, photographs of their studio. Which is fun. Some people have totally tidied their studio, so it's beautiful and clean. And then some people, it's in mid-project, so it's a disaster, like all studios should be. And what kinds of people do you have on the show? Like, what kinds of guests? Um, so we have, we have a whole slew of makers. Now, a lot of them are textile-oriented, because that's my background. I'm, I've been in the sewing industry for many years. Um, but I also love ceramicists and painters. Um, so it's it's really anyone who's making anything. You know, we, we spoke with a coffee roaster in our first season. Last season, we went to England, and I got to speak with my favorite author. So it's it's anyone who is creative and making something. 
Okay, great. And about how long are the episodes? They're a little shorter than my podcast. Yeah, you know, we we keep them like 15, 20, 25 minutes long. And the reason for that is that when I used to work in an office, I had a roughly 20 minute commute. And it would drive me crazy because all the podcasts I listened to were either very long or just like slightly too long. And where can people go to check out Hello Atelier? Um, so Hello Atelier can be found on any of your pav- favorite podcast apps, um, but we also have HelloAtelier.org, and you can listen to the episode streaming there, and that's where you'll also find the pictures of the um, studios. Well, Betsy, thank you so much. Thank you. And now back to my conversation with Matt. So you were three years old when your grandmother bought the show. Um, And from what I've read, she really involved her family throughout the, you know, over the years, her children and grandchildren right from the beginning. Um, And I'm wondering if you have memories from when you were a child of being at the show. Um, I was, she used to do fashion shows. And I was a model in one of the early fashion shows, uh, but not, I, I don't have a lot of childhood memories. My Boy Scout troop did the sex sitting group. We started that when I was in it. So as a, as a scout, I was involved and I helped in my early teenage years moving the equipment, um, you know, getting the carts on the truck, getting them off the truck, that kind of stuff for the actual show. Okay. And so, um, did you really get more involved in working there later on, sort of after college? That's more when you were started to work there? Well, actually, that's a really funny story. Um, so I helped – she closed down the fabric patch uh, when I was graduating high school. So I helped her move all the all the road stuff out of the fabric patch into the office. Um and then I worked the show. I would take most – I didn't have to usually take school off for it, but sometimes I'd have to take, take a day off. And I'd work the actual show um, doing gopher work basically. Go get this, take this here, you know, that kind of stuff. And the last year I did it, my cousin had made an announcement to my grandmother and the family that she was leaving the company. She wanted to become a forensic lab tech. Um, she now works at a blood bank in – I believe it's Philadelphia um, – and so I remember saying to um, to my dad, I wonder if I could get that job because earlier in that year, it was my second year in college, and my dad had decided that I needed a job, that I was no longer going to just go from you know class to class and not have any responsibilities. So he made me get a job doing telemarketing for the college. You know, you get the calls from the Alumni Association. You know what? I had that job when I was in college. <laughs> Yes. Not a fun job. No, I really didn't like it at all. I got to tell you, <laughs> it was not it was, good. It was horrible. So I remember saying, I want to work for road. I bet I could do this and make some changes and really, you know, really do some good here. So I asked my grandmother and my grandmother said, mm, I don't think so. So I remember talking to my dad and I talked to her mother and everything and never really got a solid answer, except my dad called me around the middle of February that year and said, you need to put in your notice because your grandma expects you to work on the first of the month. (laughs) 
So I put in my notice. I, I showed up the first of the month and I started. Well, my grandmother never really expected me to stick around. Uh, you know, teenage boys, I was 19. They're kind of squirrely. You never know if they're really going to stick around and, and really devote themselves to something. So she expected me to go, be gone by the summer. And then a year later, and then a year later, um, I worked, I've worked here since February of 2008. Wow. Right. Okay. So I, I just kind of, I blossomed into the role and I took over and I ran with it. I wonder, I wonder. Um, what it is that you liked about it. I mean, it seems like you're right that it, it maybe was something that people wouldn't have expected of a 19 year old guy, you know, um, to say, Hey, want to, want to be, you know, instrumental in running your grandmother's quilt show. Like, mm, <laughs> does, you know, I mean, Hey, okay. Some, some 19 year old guys might, might be into that, but, but it, it does seem somewhat of an unusual, you know, choice. Um, so was there something about it that right away you were like, this is for me? Well, it, it was kind of a, um, kind of a situation of, of what worked with my schedule. So I was a, a music performance major at Cal State Long Beach and I had a really horrible school schedule. I had classes five days a week. Um, and they'd be in the morning and then late at night. And then I had the days off. And you played, the, it, you played the tuba. I played the tuba. Yes. So it was not a situation where I could really hold any other kind of job and still have the, the grueling performance schedules that I had. So it allowed me to come up and work in my free time in my dorm room and allowed me to work on Saturdays. So I would drive up on the weekend and I'd work from Saturdays in the office. Um, so it kind of allowed me to transition that way into the role. And it just got to be something, it's infectious working here. Um, you just start and you don't really expect you're going to like it. And it's a very laid back, casual kind of environment. You know, nobody has to wear business suits. There's no expectations. As long as you're dressed and you don't look like, you know, rolled out of bed yesterday, you're fine. Um, you know, and it really played itself well. And I think the unexpected kind of drew me to it. Um, the fact that nobody really would expect me to do this kind of pushed me harder in the direction. And then once I graduated college, I was going to try and start being a professional musician. So it allowed me to work during the days and gig at night on the weekends as well. So it, it was very flexible in allowing me to do that. And somewhere on the, along the line, I fell in love with it. And there was no changing it at that point. Even through law school, um, I, I kind of knew that this was the direction my life was going to be headed. Um, everything, once I started here, was backup plans, right? So I went to law school to get a, a license to practice law as a backup plan in case, you know, something happened to road or grandma decided she wanted to sell it to somebody else or, you know, I needed to leave for whatever reason. I would have a backup plan. But road was always the driving force forward for me. I see. So, um, so when you did decide that you weren't going to play the tuba professionally, that you were going to need to go to law school. You always in the back of your mind wanted to buy this show that or take over this show from your grandmother. Was there somebody else in the family? Because there were other family members who worked at the show, you know, whether they were gophering like you were or were working in other, you know, faculties of the show. Um, who were interested in, you know, taking part, were there any, was there anybody else who took as keen of an interest as you did? 
not for as long as I did. So my sister worked for it for a while. My uh, both of my some of my cousins have worked in and out for it. Well, in fact, I hired my youngest cousin. She's in here helping me run the show now. Um, but nobody really took the bull by the horns and ran with it. Uh, my uncles, who were really instrumental in in the early days, and even even two of the three of them are still involved today with the show. Um, it was never really it was never really possible to run it as a four-way partnership. So it was kind of a situation where mm, I was, I was really the best one groomed to do it. I had been here the longest. Um, Carolyn had actually semi-retired a few years before she sold it. So I was kind of in the background running it, making all the decisions prior to the actual sale happening, um, which is one of the things I attribute to being why it happened so smoothly on the outside. Nobody saw any real drama or, or you know issues going on because it had already been really in effect for years before it had actually happened. Okay. She had had some health issues, correct? So it was, um, it was something that she really needed to hand over. She, she has, she'd had some, um, not as serious as were thought at the time. Um, but it's kind of a memory issue. You know, she's 81, um, in her memory, it's not Alzheimer's or anything like that, but she has a hard time remembering things. So it it had turned out in the office to be a situation where I think she really knew that she wasn't able to really run this anymore. Right. Um, and it was a situation where, well, he's here, he knows what he's doing. Sure. He, He likes it. We'll, we'll start grooming him to, to take over. Right. And I'm sure in her mind too, like how awesome it is to have somebody like you who she trusts and who wants to do it. You know, I mean, that's such a huge blessing too. And you're clearly so passionate and capable. I mean, I think that that in, in a lot of ways is like a dream come true for so many people who own a business like this, um, to have you there, somebody who really wants to do this. Um, and, and so that's amazing. So, um, and so you met your wife, Jen, um, in high school in the marching band. Right. So she played flute and she was dating one of my friends. Um, <laughs> and, and, and in high school and we kind of kept in touch. And then in college, we just, you know, college happened. She was an RA. I was the one breaking all the rules. You know, we kind of lived a different life in college. Um, musicians have a much different life than, you know, teachers and math majors do. Um, so then we kind of met up I had just started my first semester in law school and we met up and we started dating um, the following after that. Actually, the hook I got her um, to date me with, because she didn't want to go out with me. I tried to get her to go out to dinner. She wouldn't go. Um, persistence is key. You know, <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't do any of this stuff. But she told me when we met up for drinks and I told her what I did, she said, well, I have a sewing club at school. Would you mind? And I said, oh, I'll give them tickets. Just tell me how many you need. I'll drop them off. Um, you know, I'll give you a tour. You can kind of see what it's all about. So I kind of got her there to give her the tickets uh, on Monday. So I walked around and I showed her because nobody really understood understands throughout college law school everyone thinks oh you run your grandma's little quilt show that's cute and, and 
you know, and in, and in law school, it was really bad because you have all those really macho egos in law school and they're going to be these big high powered attorneys and making all this money and working all these hours. And here I am in the evening program with all the older adults that are kind of changing careers. And because you the- were, you were working still, you were working at that time full time during the day at road to California and taking the evening classes at law school. Right. So I worked full time to the day till three. I would leave, get some, get, get like a quick snack for dinner, go to class. Okay. So you were with the adults in the, in the law school evening classes. Right. So uh, my best friend in law school, he's in his uh, mid forties. He's got a couple kids. Um, There were a couple younger um, ones of us that were younger that had jobs because they didn't want to take all the debt out for law school. Um, so they kind of helped work through it. Um, so, but yeah, I was with the older people, which is generally more competitive than being with the, the younger students. Cause the younger students want to go out on the weekends and drink and party. And in these older adults, they see the bill, they know what it is and they're going to study. Right. So it was really an eye-opening experience for me being a music major, maybe writing three or four papers in my whole college career to going to being a, attorney who has to read, you know, 300 pages a week for classes and is writing probably 20 or 30 papers, um, per term as briefing cases. So you brief probably 20 cases per, uh, per class. And I was in four classes and the, the, the difference, the culture shock that I had that first semester was real eye opening. But they were looking at you like, okay, yeah, but you run a little quilt show. <laughs> <laughs> so when I when I finally convinced them to come, uh-huh. it was it was they couldn't believe it. In fact, it was funny because if you come in from the east, Palm Springs area to go to the school, um, you drive right by the convention center on your way to law school. So they were late to class because of road one night. And they walked in mad, just furious. I'll never forget it. The professor was late. Everybody was late because the cops were out there doing traffic control because the show had just let out. And they were so mad and they couldn't figure out what was going on in the convention center. And I rolled in 30 minutes late because I had told them I was going to be late. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We had the police out there doing all the trafficking. And that's when they realized, oh my, that's you? Right. You did this? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's quilting. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. So, and then you proposed to her. I saw the picture on the, uh, on the floor at, uh, at, at the show, which was really adorable. She didn't want a public proposal. Oops. And I knew this, but I knew the last real thing I would control in my life solely <laughs> was when I was going to propose. So one of my uncles actually had joked with me, oh, are you going to propose to her on the middle of the show floor? And I looked at him and go, you know, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so we went with it. Yeah. Um, still to this day, she's not thrilled about um, being proposed to on the middle of the show floor. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure I would be either, but you know, there you go. Um, yeah, those pictures are really cute. Yep. So over um, the loud, it was over the loudspeaker too. <laughs> I know there was a, there is a microphone in your hand. Yeah, I saw that. Um, uh, yeah, well, you know, you, uh, there you go. Um, so okay, I want to um, get back to talking a little bit about the show itself. So we talked about um, the prizes 
that get given away. And so my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but so the, the prize categories have a sponsor, right? And then the, so I'm just, if you could talk a little bit about how like the, the judging takes place and how I just, I don't know a whole lot about that and, um, and sort of, sort of how the themes are chosen and what kinds of, prizes are given away. I just don't know a lot about about all of that world, you know, that side of things. So if you can talk a little bit about that, the, how that works at Road, that would be helpful. So the world of quilt judging is probably as political as the politics you watch on CNN. And it's really funny because everybody has their own different way of judging quilts, right? There's um, the old NQA, they've reformed into some organization. I don't remember what there are. There's a group in Northern California that was certifying judges. Um, and there's all this push for certified judges. And, and you know, some shows you'll put your quilt into, you'll get different comments back. Um, we judge flat, which means the quilts are not hanging in the show and they're being judged. They are flat on a table so the judges can walk up and look at them and touch them and see, you know, the stitching, see the design, the, um, the helpers in the judging room will actually hold the quilts up first so the judges can get a feel of the, of the, you know, the design as a whole. Um, our categories are broken down a little differently. We've always been different in our categories. Um, the nice thing about being a small independent show, well, small in quotes, is we get to make changes on a dime. We don't have to go to a committee. We don't have to get people to vote on it. Um, if we decide the change needs to be made, we make it. So our categories are kind of divided into the themed category and more of a technique-driven category. Um, we have techniques such as piecing, applique, mixed techniques, and then other for whole cloths, basically. Um, and that takes up more of the technique-driven categories. And then there's more. These used to be, quote, art categories. But again, with the politics, the term art in art quilting it turns out to be a real hot button word. Mm. So we just removed it. We said, okay, well, if you have an abstract, an abstract quilt could be a modern quilt. It could be a piece quilt. It could be an applique quilt. Mm. It could be a Picasso knockoff. It really doesn't matter. It's an abstract. Hmm. So there's an abstract, there's people, there's pictorial, which is basically a mixture of like a, the naturescape and people and animals. There's a critter, there's, a uh, fantasy, which is a new one we added to try and cut down on some of the numbers because these categories get probably 60 to 75 entries a piece. Okay. So these ones are really competitive. The, the technique driven categories, they get a lot of traditional quilts. Some modern quilts fit into there, like the, the real improvisational piece quilts. They really go into a piece category. Um, and it's been a, I wouldn't say a challenge for our judges, but it has taken a different philosophy to be able to judge a modern quilt next to a piece to nine patch or something, right? And it takes a lot of of skill and knowledge and what's going on in the world of quilting to be a judge. It, it always fascinates me to watch. Um, and Stevie Graves does a wonderful job of kind of mitigating some of that. She's got rules for the judges. Um, we're very selective about who we allow to judge. So as we're putting together the judging team, she's very mindful of uh, potentially conflicting personalities. 
Okay. Um, because you could have somebody who tries to just railroad and run away with, um, with the judging floor and, and there's a lot of money at stake. So you want to make sure each quilt is getting a fair, a fair shake, a fair judged. Yeah. Experience. Wow. Yeah. This is complicated. Um, there's it, a, there's a lot to think through here. You could really do an entire show just talking on quilting and judging yeah. and the judging floor and all the dynamics that go into it. Um, and for people it, to enter, is it all, so is it, is, are, is there like a digital entry at first and then you send in the actual quilt or is it all just you send it in? No, we do not want them sending their quilts in until they've been accepted. Okay. And they, so they used – it's really funny how technology has, has moved along. Um, back, you know, back we were talking about how involved the family was. We had the first online digital jurying program. So when you hear a quilt show is juried and judged, it means an anonymous panel goes through and looks at every single quilt that has been entered into the show and votes on whether to accept it or to not. So this happens back months before the show. So we cut off our entries the 1st of October. We're usually in the jurying process somewhere between the middle of October and, and the 1st of November. Um, so it was, we do it all digitally now. They used to send in 35 millimeter slides and then you have to fly your jurors in. Mm. And that's, that's quite an expense. Yeah. So this way the jurors can stay where they are and they just look online and go through and vote. Yep, they can be wearing their pajamas. We've had them do it at three in the morning. I'll wake up, come in, be be upset that they have done nothing the night before. Come in the next morning, and they're, and they're done. Is there a software program that's used? Is there a proprietary software that's used for that? We have our own proprietary systems. Okay. In fact, we're we're actually um, in the process of writing all new software right now. Wow. Um, there is commercially available software through. Um, um, Art Call, she has a jurying software. Um, we're using Gloaterworks to write all of our new stuff. Uh, he's based out of England. He's the same individual that wrote the online jurying software for IQA. Um, so we, our, yeah, we have the software that my uncle had developed back, and I think we've been doing online jurying since 2007. So we, we were the pioneers, the first show to do it. Um, and we haven't really done any updates to it since. So this year we decided, um, I sat down with Stevie and, um, my, my dad's real involved. He's, I kind of bounce ideas off of him and I bounce them off of my wife and we decided this is the year, uh, we invested quite a bit of money into it and we're rewriting everything. So the class registration software is all being rewritten. So is the entry software, everything's new. So we kind of took the, the feel of the old software and now we've updated it where you, now you can do it on your iPad, right? So nobody mm -hmm. was able to like register for a class on their iPad. Right. Now, and now it's mobile. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, I know it requires a lot of, I mean, it really, it requires a, a huge investment. Um, and I, I'm a little bit more familiar with the modern quilt guild systems only because I've just talked to them a little bit more. And, you know, I, I just remember there, there had been years in the past when, you know, class registrations would open and the system would crash, you know, and that yep. was a huge nightmare because it was just overloaded and they fixed that now. But, you know, you have to have servers that can handle, you know, huge volume coming in at once, for example. I mean, there, there's a lot to think through. 
So one of the first things that that I pushed for when I started here was we used to take registrations by hand, right? So you would print off and we would get probably a thousand the first day. We do now. So probably 800 or 700 that first day. And we'd print off every single registration that came in, right? And then you would hand have to register them into the program in the office. And then they'd have to give you three choices for each class because that one would fill and you'd have to go to the next one. You have to be emailing them. And then somebody would have to press in the credit card information and run the card. And then you'd have to mail them confirmation. So we used to have our busiest season here in the office from when it opened in July through September. It took us almost two months to get caught up on all this. So I remember talking to my uncle on whether we could automate it. And he said, sure. So in 2009 for the 2010 show was the first we had a true automated registration system. And the server was able to take five requests per second. Now think about that's five requests per second. And it's still, it didn't crash, but it clogged the internet line to the point where it was just kicking people off left and right. People get really frustrated, you know, they do. They sure do. I mean, my clientele is a little bit older than, than the modern quilt guild when they crash. Cause I, you know, I, I look and see what everyone's doing. I saw when they crashed. Um, so my clientele had a real hard time with it. And in 2010, we were the only show in town doing this. So each year it felt like for the next five or six years, we were upgrading the internet connection or the computer or both trying to get it, find you know the secret sauce. Um, so this year we're a little nervous because we've we've moved outside the family to, to the software developer. Um, but he has assured me we're the only ones on this server and we have no blocks on, you know, the amount of speed we can get. So we should be OK. Um, but you never really know you're OK until you start hearing yeah. the ding of the email confirmations coming through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that, you know, almost every company is a tech company now, you know, and I think that it's just important for people to understand the degree to which so much of this is really dependent on software systems um, and how, you know, how much, you know, how much infrastructure is really in place here and and how costly that is um, and how dependent you really are on those systems working. Well, you wouldn't be able to run a show these days this size without automation. And if you did, your employee expenses would be so high that nobody would be able to afford to take your classes. Mm -hmm. So, and in California, with the way they're raising the minimum wage out here, um, we're trying to keep as small of a staff as possible to stave off passing all those increases onto the customers because they're only able to handle so many increases in costs. So it's something that, that, you know, most people don't understand if you sign up for a guild, a class at your local guild, it's 40 bucks, the guild subsidizing, bringing the teacher in, the teacher's fees. Nobody really understands that when you're looking at a conference, there's nobody to turn around and subsidize it. So you're, you're getting the full, full weight of what's going on. You know, teachers are expecting to be paid more, which is understandable. Everyone, you know, right now is expecting to be paid more. So the teacher rates are going up. It means class rates are going up. It's a direct relationship between, it's an economic relationship. So in every show's facing the same 
same issues. And if they tell you they're not, they're probably lying to you. Mm -hmm. So all the teachers are expecting a little bit more. Um, It used to be a gauge somewhere you could get a teacher for four to six hundred dollars for a six hour class. Now they're pushing nine hundred. So it's really in the last couple of years, it's really taken a hard change in turn on the fees. And as you talked about earlier, you know, you want your teachers to feel fairly compensated and that's really an important, you know, value as well. And so, you know, it all has to be in balance. Um, right. So that is important. So, um, okay. And then I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you do look for in a teacher. Um, so when you're booking these classes and we talked about you have 200 plus classes on offer, um, you know, plus vendors and plus the show itself. So there's lots of things for, you know, people who are attending to do. They can learn, they can shop, and then they can kind of walk the gallery and see and get inspired. So there's, there's really a rich experience to, and plus there's bus tours prior to and after the show itself. So there's just a lot to do um, that makes the experience really wonderful. Um, so when it comes to the classes, what kind of mix are you looking for, you know, when you're booking these teachers? You know, what do you, when I know you said you're at Quilt Market, you're looking for somebody who can really engage the room and all of that. But um, as far as like topic areas, um, you know, what kind of mix are you looking for there? We try and cover the gamut. Um, And it's difficult because, you know, in my mind, historical quilting classes are kind of a a dying breed, right? But they're not. If you don't offer historical quilting classes, you have an uprising of your attendees that are upset. So we have to try and cover everything. Um, As far as why we select certain teachers, there's pretty much two categories I put into put teachers into. There's ones that are pretty much a guaranteed sellout because they have a big name. So for long arm quilting, if you're going to take a class with the long arm quilter and it's Linda Taylor, you're going to sign up to take a class with Linda Taylor, Linda V. Taylor. You're going to do it every single time. You're going to take an applique class or a sweet 16 class with David Taylor because it's David Taylor. So you have the real name-driven people. And then you have the ones that are doing something so fresh and unique that, that it's different. So either you're a big name and we know who you are or you're doing something different that's really caught our eye. Um, and, it, and it's difficult to really put a pin on what we're looking for. But it's got to be unique because if you're teaching a, you know, a, a famous pattern designer's pattern and you're a certified instructor, well, we don't want the certified instructor. We want the, the author. We want the person who wrote it. Mm-hmm. So, so for our purposes, it's really important to be unique and original than it is to become one of the certified instructors out there. Because for us, I'd rather get the real thing than a certified instructor. I see. So you're, yeah, you're looking for like the originator. You're looking, yeah, you're, because you're sort of positioning as the premier show, you really want to attract the, the premier teacher, um, right. right. I see what you're saying rather than a teacher of that technique. Right. But we're not, we're not beyond bringing somebody new in who's doing something different. Okay. So we, we've brought new people in that's doing something different and they've just blown up. Um, 
and brought famous people in and they don't do as well as the new person. And it, and it has something to do with what's being offered. And really it has to do with what the consumer wants. You know, that's what everyone wants to know. Every fabric company, pattern designer, publisher, what does the consumer want? Well, nobody really knows other than the consumer. And half the time I feel the consumer doesn't know what they want. <laughs> right. Um, and that's really trying to, figure it out. So Stevie and Stevie uh, predominantly spends a lot of time doing those book reviews, learning and in, in as a sponge as to what's going on, um, keeps her ear on the ground. Um, she's been teaching me how to do that. So I've been learning um, how to weed some of the teachers out. Um, it's really unfortunate too, because we have some great local Southern California cult teachers, but because of our our dates and some of our contractual requirements, we can't really have them teach. It doesn't make sense for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're pulling more international teachers. We've got Jillian Travis coming in from England who does some phenomenal work. She was actually on the cruise I just got back from. And her work is, it's fantastic. I mean, the the stuff she comes up with and how she does it, it's, it's mind boggling. Um, and she's a ball of energy. Oh my goodness. You, you get tired watching her. Um, and it's phenomenal. So we look for somebody different, somebody new, somebody who's, who's breaking through. Um, and then back to, you know, schoolhouse presentations. If you have a book and the book's written really well, that that's something we are looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting to think too, that a book in that way is still, does still have value because something I've talked quite a bit about on this show actually is about the economics of writing a book. And so, you know, right now for sure, it's not necessarily that favorable for a lot of designers to write a book, um, but it does open doors. And um, this is actually a door that it can still open. In other words, a book can really still be an entree to doing certain things. And one of them is to teaching. Um, and so if you do have a book that, you know, is a body of work that is unique and um, presents something that you can teach, this is a way to to get it in, you know, to get an opportunity to do that. So, um, so that's interesting to hear. Um, and you just mentioned a cruise that you just came back from. And that cruise um, was part of Road to California. Is that right? Yes. So we partnered with um, World of Quilts Travel and Deb Roberts. And she actually put on, she handles all the, um, you know, she's a travel agent. I can't sell travel agent stuff. I don't have the correct license. And being an attorney, they would love to kill me about not being licensed to do something. Um, so Deb does all the all the travel agent stuff. She does it with a lot of different groups. Um, but we do a lot of the marketing. And there's a special road touch involved. You get a special road goodie bag. You know, I'm on board the ship. If you want to meet and talk with me, I'm always available. Um, it's really a, a, a nice kind of a perk to our attendees to offer. And it was a mix of people that were there because of road and the people that were there because, um, they traveled dead before. I see. And world of quilts, they, they do, um, the bus tours that are, is that right? They do the bus tours that, um, happen before and after road as well. No, those are done by a group. Oh, of, a different group. A different group in Southern California called the Traveling Quilters. Oh, right. Okay, sorry, got them confused. Okay, yes. yes. So that's a different group, the Traveling Quilters, and they do the bus tours that kind of take you around um, 
LA and kind of take you to different quilting destinations so that you don't have to kind of fight LA traffic and, but you still get to go to fabric shops and um, like go to RJR and um, go see the Pearl Soho warehouse and that kind of thing um, prior to and after the show um, so that you get a little sort of taste of local culture too. Correct. Okay. I see. So there's, there's sort of um, a, a little bit of travel, but the summer cruise is, is with a different agency. Okay. Got it. Um, all right. And I'm just trying to see here. Um, so um, I wondered if there's anything that, um, that you think people sort of don't understand necessarily or don't really realize or don't, ex- yeah, just sort of don't, don't get about Road to California or about what it is to run a show like this. Um, you know what I mean? Like sometimes, you know, when you meet people and you tell them about the show um, or, or even at the show, the, the, you know, people who come to the show year after year, people just sort of don't really understand or get well, there's a, there's a couple things. Um, for talking to somebody who doesn't know the show or know really of the show, they don't understand the size of the show. So people are stuck back about 10 years ago when we only had about 10 or 12,000 attendees coming. They don't realize how the show has really grown and kind of hit a critical mass of what's of, of, you know, of quilting going on in the, in the area. Um, some things the attendees don't realize is it still, it needs to be a business. Nothing could be, not everything can be free because if everything's free, there is no business. Right. And it's not as much about making money as it is about just making sure we can keep the lights on in the building and pay all of our expenses and and handle all the the business aspects we have to handle um, to just stay afloat. Yeah, it's and that's I think that's true with a lot of quilt businesses and, and especially craft industry businesses is that there's there's separated into two categories. There's the business businesses and then there's the hobby businesses of people that that may not really, they might not use like a QuickBooks software and realize that they're losing money every time they sell a yard of fabric at 15% off or, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's a lack of understanding. Yes, that's true. And um, that's been a problem, I think, in the crafts business forever, perhaps, um, and certainly still persists. Um, and it, it is problematic for sure. Um, because it is a, a business about providing leisure and hobby experiences for other people. And often people who get into it, get into it because they really enjoy their hobby um, and really enjoy their leisure time. And it becomes a business by accident. Um, it is, it, 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 you know, those lines get blurred. They they do. And, it, and, it's, and it's sad to see so many great vendors having issues because they're not embracing the business culture that's going on in today's economy. You know, there, there is a way to survive against the Amazons of the world. Right. Um, and that's with customer service, because if you're shopping on Amazon, Hey, I, I'm a prime member and leading up to this cruise, it was disgusting how many Amazon boxes were coming to my house. But if I need information on something and I'm looking to buy something and I'm not quite certain like fabric. I'm not a, I'm not a professional on picking out fabric. I have to go somewhere to somebody who knows more than I do. And going online doesn't really help me because I don't understand some of the differences in, in the lines and what I'm looking for. So I have to go 
to the professionals. And I, and I think that's being lost is, as, as a, as a vendor, brick and mortar, whatever you are in the industry, you're selling customer service, not so much a product. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. Um, okay. So, um, this year's show is January 24th to 27th, 2019 in Ontario, California. Um, so people want to go to Road to California and check it out if they've never been or if they want to come back again. Um, that's when it is. And um, it sounds like it's going to be amazing. And um, I wondered, Matt, if you could recommend something to us that you personally just have been enjoying. I know you have um, a son at home right now. How old is your is your son? Is his name Braden? His name is Braden, and he's going to be eleven months. Oh, congratulations! That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so I don't know if it's anything that you've been doing with him or something else that just something fun that you've been enjoying right now that you would recommend to listeners. Oh, I'd recommend you find an 11 month old and watch him because it's great fun. <laughs> he is, we were gone for two weeks for the cruise and we come back and I'm at my in-laws house because that's who's watching him. And I look down and there he is standing, holding himself up by the coffee Aww. table. And I go, whoa, you were down there before. That's and amazing. Yay. Yeah. So he's like, so is he like cruising around now, like holding on and cruising? Not yet. Quite yet, but holding, like pulling himself up. Pulling himself up and then trying to take everything on the table, off the table. Oh. So he's learned that. And somehow while he was at grandma's house, he learned how to throw a temper tantrum. Oh, yes. Yes. He, he hadn't done that before. And he he's a great baby. Doesn't cry much. He sleeps till seven in the morning, goes to sleep at about eight o'clock at night. Wonderful kid. But the other day I came home from work yesterday, actually came home from work and my wife had put him down because he was getting into the dog water and he started to scream and cry. And I looked at him and go, what'd you do? He's, he only does that maybe five times his whole life. Then four of them was because he's getting his shots. And she goes, oh, this is his new thing. If you move him and he doesn't like, he's going to scream. Well, that's, you know what? <laughs> that's good though, because he's expressing himself. He has a strong opinion, right? Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's actually a good thing. I think that's good. He, he needs to have a strong opinion about something. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall She Naps podcast. It was really great talking with you. Absolutely. Anytime. Okay. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Hello Atelier, the podcast that takes you inside the artist's studio. Join host Betsy Blodgett as she sits down with quilters, textile artists, ceramicists, painters, and more, many in their very own studios. Further immerse yourself in creative worlds by visiting helloatelier.org to see photos from their studio visits and links to each artist's work. Then sign up for the Hello Atelier newsletter for bonus interviews with makers and entrepreneurs, including me. Hello Atelier is available on your favorite podcast app. Tune in to their latest episode with quilter Luke Haynes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and give them a rating. Thank you so much, Hello Atelier. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.